You're listening to Global Conversations. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Global Conversations podcast. Before we started, I just wanted to remind listeners that you can subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening. Follow us on Twitter at G underscore conversations and on Instagram at monkgc. You can also visit our website at www.monkgc.com, where you can find a lot of really great content that's created by students at the University of Toronto's Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. Today, I'm interviewing Dr. Christopher Stewart Taylor. Dr. Taylor completed his PhD at Western University in History and Migration and Ethnic Relations. He currently teaches in the Department of History and the Arts First program at the University of Waterloo. His book, Flying Fish in the Great White North, The Autonomous Migration of Black Barbadians, was published by Fernwood Publishing. He also works in the Ontario Public Service and began his career as a policy coordinator intern in the Deputy Minister's Office at the Ministry of Labour. He was the Diversity and Inclusion Coordinator in the Ministry of the Attorney General's Diversity, Inclusion and Accessibility Office, a Senior Policy Advisor at the Ontario's Anti-Racism Directorate, and Manager of Social Justice and Change Cluster at the Ontario Correctional Services College. So Dr. Taylor, I just wanted to say welcome and thank you so much for coming. Ella, thank you so much for the invitation. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And long, my, I got to change his bio. That bio is way too long. I got to cut that. <laughs> no, no, no. It's good. It's good. We have to read. We have to read everything to make sure. <laughs> make sure you get all the credit. Um, yeah. So my first question was, I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your work or maybe what's got your attention these days. I mean, right now. So I'm at the University of Waterloo, as you mentioned in the bio. So I'm a, a lecturer in the Department of History and the Arts First program. In addition to that, some new roles that I have collected, I guess you can say I am the equity offices confronting anti-black racism advisor. And I'm also the faculty of arts is black equity strategist and anti-racism advisor. So that's just what I'm doing at Waterloo in that space. But I mean, now, like most folks, uh, I mean, we're recording in March 2021. It's, you know, just just, you know, keeping your head above water and, and making things move and seeing the positivity around you and understanding that the space that I'm in right now, I'm, I'm considerably blessed to be able to do this work and, and be healthy in this space as well. So I think for me, you know, over this past year is just being really grateful for what I have and, and being in that space. So that's what's taking up my time and also being outside. I mean, it's warming up. So being outside, enjoying the sunshine. Yeah, totally. Me too. Absolutely. And yeah, I agree about the reflections of the last year. I think it's it's quite trite and I think people talk about it a lot, but um, I feel also very grateful to be in a space where I get to, you know, just think about really cool day, cool things all day long and yeah, as well as as trying to keep your head above water. To go yeah, in. I don't think that's something that we should underestimate. I know, as you mentioned, like a lot of people talk about it and whatnot, but at the same time, it's like, do at least for me, I can't speak for anybody else, but at least for me, I yes, I know we're in the post summer twenty twenty mode, and understand I understand very well about you know confronting anti black racism and what's happening in the world. At the same time, I understand my small p privileges that. You know, even to be able to do this podcast with you today, it's it's something to be grateful for. And I'm not going to forget that, you know, for the rest of my life. Yeah, totally. And and balancing the joy with with the other work is I think it's it's really important and, and good. 
Cool. So um, my next question is, I've I've really loved listening to a handful of episodes um, so far on your podcast, The Curve with Christopher, which you were telling me before we started recording is actually a, a podcast for your for your class, which makes a lot of sense. Um, but for those who haven't heard it, it's it's a podcast about sports and sports intersection with race and history and culture and society. So I was wondering, yeah, if you could tell me a little bit more about your scholarship on sports um, and sports relevance to so many different topics. Um, and what has it been like thinking through and researching that subject? So that's a fantastic question. I appreciate that. And yeah, you know, so it really came about um, for folks who are doing any remote learning, particularly in post-secondary institutions. I know in September 2020, um, there's that big push that, you know, we got to do everything remote. You record your videos and make sure they're four to six minutes long and not too long and not too short and da 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 and you do all this work and, and then you get your, your course evaluation and feedback and students like, you gave us too much work. I'm tired of looking at videos. So the big thing for me was like, you know what? What can we do differently in these spaces that students can consume and consume information and continue to learn? Podcasts aren't new. <laughs> I mean, this is not something novel that I created. Say, hey, oh man, you know what? Christopher, you should get a teaching award because you created podcasts. Like, no, <laughs> it's... For me, the big thing was I still want students to consume and learn in this space, but be able and do it remotely as well, but do it in a way that they don't feel like they're tied to staring at a computer screen for you know six hours a day. And if you're in Singapore or Hong Kong, which I have students in Singapore and in those spaces and they're like, oh, wait, I got to wake up at two o'clock in the morning, and come to class. I'm like, no, nah, just, you know, download the podcast on your phone and listen to it. So the big thing for me in terms of sport and scholarship, so this was a course, this was a pre-existing course. So it's History 205 um, at Western. And so it's a, technically it's called the History of Western Sport. So it's an existing, yeah, it's an existing course. And then the publisher sent me the, the book, the course text that they've been teaching. And I said, no, I'm not going to teach that. <laughs> yeah, you know, it was a double-edged sword because when you say, oh, I'm not going to teach an existing course, you know what you have to do. You need to build a completely new course. And sport has always been a passion of mine. Um, so I, I did my undergrad at U of T. So I was on the varsity track team at U of T. Uh, so sport has always been a part of my life. And one thing I really explain to young folks, particularly young black boys in particular, young black men, I'm like, look, you know, there's a stereotype that you can either do sports or school, but I tell them all the time, I'm like, look, the same energy, dedication and discipline that you put into your sport is the same characteristics that you put into school. <laughs> you know, it's the exact same thing. So how about you flip that way? So for me, there's always been a particular blend between sport and academics and no secret to anybody, <laughs> you know, there is a a big, uh, for lack of a better term, a big focus on sport and Black Lives Matter this summer and fall. And it actually annoyed me, to be perfectly honest with you. When I saw the, you know, particularly in the NBA, the bubble, the Black Lives Matter and the names on the back, I was like, this is complete BS. Like, what are y'all doing? You know what I mean? Like, how are you really interrogating the true intersections of oppression you know what i mean of misogyny of patriarchy of capitalism big check on that all embedded within the nba and so you're trying to tell me that you know you put black lives matter on a court we're going to change the world no 
you know. And so I use that as a we'll call it a an intersection into this world, because a lot of the students, when they took the course, they saw history of Western sport. It was a pre-existing course. They knew what the course looked like. And I said, gotcha. Because these are a lot of students who would never take this class. I got a lot of, you know, OHL hockey players. I got a lot of athletes, they're lacrosse players and whatnot. And never in a million years would they take a course that's going to focus on race, anti-black racism, misogyny, rape culture, settler colonialism. Never in a million years. So I was like, gotcha. Boom. And you pull them in. And so for me, I use sport as a space that the people that we want to be having these conversations who refuse to have these conversations, I'm going to force them to have these conversations. And it was a pushback to what I was really annoyed about over the summer where we had such a very good platform for people to engage with this on the athletic level. And they did it really on a cursory space. And I was like, this is garbage. And on top of that, all that also fed in <laughs> nicely, for lack of a better term, with the Toronto Raptors and Terrence Davis and that situation with Terrence Davis and the assault charges. And I was like, look, why is nobody talking about this? So let's try to do this in this space. That sounds so that sounds so smart. And I, I love also how the method by which you're delivering your classes is really just one small part of how you're trying to make all of that information accessible and um, and really relevant to, I think, as you say, people who, who wouldn't step into those conversations in the first place. And like, I think that work is really hard, but it's, it's really important. And that's such a, that's such a cool way of going about doing it. I was listening. I really loved that. The one episode you have about, um, uh, Maradano, right. And in Argentina. Yeah. And, and this idea of blackness in Argentina, it's, Oh man, it's so good because it's really what I miss about history where you take one moment, like one snapshot, and then you completely unravel it. And I just think uh, that that episode and like that, I guess, portion of your course is such a, it's like a, it's really a piece of reclamation history of um, taking something super relevant and then looking at the historical roots of it. And I just, yeah, I really, really love that episode, especially. I'm glad you brought that up. So, uh, so <laughs> So that was the second most blowback that I got um, in this class. The most blowback I got was an episode I did on hockey and rape culture. (laughs) And I was joking with my students. I was like, yo, if this was an in-person class, I legitimately think, you know, people would try to come at me. Like the level of anger for that one, (laughs) it was next level. So for the Maradona podcast, it was... Honestly, it's for me, too. I was listening to a podcast and they're talking about, you know, this new Maradona documentary on HBO. So I was like, all right, cool. Let me go check this out. Like, I'm not a big soccer guy. Yeah, I know who Maradona, Pele, like all the top. I I get it. You know, Ronaldo, you know, Messi. Like, I know that, but I'm not. It's not my sport. You know what I mean? But I I engage in all sports. Right. And I was just I watched it and I was like, hold on. There's just literally like two blips in it that he was mentioned that he's black. And I was like interesting and i mean my research you know particularly my grad school research really focused on i did black identities in the americas so i do have an understanding how blackness is very different and seen very differently in south america as opposed to how we define blackness in north america that that's that's a historical fact and so i was like all right cool you know what let's have this guy married on everybody knows who's never mentioned that he's black let's root it in this this documentary which the students had to watch and as you mentioned just take that one little moment of time 
and start peeling back the layers because the podcast itself isn't really about Maradona. The podcast itself is about blackness in Argentina and the whitening, literally the legislative whitening of black people and of the population during the 19th, 20th century. And so for me, it's always like, how can we teach people? I'm not going to say students, but how can we teach people to engage with something that might seem completely irrelevant, but then they start connecting the dots. So again, in that podcast too, we're starting looking at, you know, his relationship in Napoli. So we started looking at blackness in Southern Italy and like, oh, there's blackness in Southern Italy. And then I had the students start connecting blackness, the concept and ideology of blackness with poverty of quote unquote lower class individuals. And they're like, oh, snap, things they would never think about. You know what I mean? But at the same time, we talk about blowback because <laughs> one of the questions I asked the students, I was like, can we consider Mary Donna black? And people are like, no, we can't. I'm like, why not? Episode is, is especially good. Um, and I'm just, yeah, I'm so interested to hear also that students had blowback against um, that episode specifically about blackness in Argentina and also across the world, as you're saying, and also hockey and rape culture. <laughs> that's quite an interesting intersection that one and the thing is i've taught you know the constructions of masculinity of canadian identity of violence of whiteness of rape culture and hockey before Mm -hmm. and one thing you can do in canada you can talk about a lot of stuff in canada you can have a conversation in canada about whiteness about white supremacy and people be like you know i don't agree with you but I can kick it. You say anything disparaging or critical of hockey, game over. <laughs> and the thing about that, I was like, I was trying to explain to him. I'm like, look, you know, this wasn't me just sitting on a, you know, on a pedestal and, you know, just having this like polemic delivery of I hate hockey. I'm like, oh, these, these scholars have done a lot of work on this. If you look at the roots and history of hockey, it's, it's embedded in this whole idea of Canadian ma- white male masculinity. These are historical facts. This is not me making this stuff up. And a lot of the pushback that we got, too, was students saying, well, you know, rape culture doesn't just exist in hockey and exists in other sports. I'm like, yeah, like that's 100 percent true. But it doesn't make hockey any better because other sports do it as well. And so for me, I did it. I put that on week seven. Uh, specifically because I knew the blowback. And one of the things I really want to do with these students was they're okay with critiquing something that is not near and dear to them. But as soon as hockey came up, it was like, oh, you're attacking me. And so we had a debrief the following week. I was like, the following week, we had a week on curling, which talked about the exact same thing. Exact whiteness and curling, the exact same thing. White spaces. We have a week this week about hunting, like sport hunting and whiteness and white masculinity. No blowback at all. So I asked him, I was like, these are the, this is the exact same question that I asked y'all. What's the big deal? It's like, well, you know, it's so near and dear to me. And what I'm trying to explain to him, I'm like, look, you can still consume something and you can still love something because all of them love hockey as part of their identity and still have the ability to critique it and be better at it. And so for me in my, in my teaching spaces, it isn't just about, you know, picking up a book and learning stuff. Cause let's be real. If you're in university, particularly in the arts, save your 10 grand a year and go buy a book for 50 bucks. (laughs) You know what I mean? If you just want to get information, go online kind of thing, that's all you got to do. So how are we kind of changing up our our pedagogies and, you know, changing up these, you know, these Eurocentric ways of teaching to start 
challenging students how they see themselves in the world. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think as somebody who did an undergrad in, in arts, like, yeah, it was never the information itself. It was like, it's deeply relevant um, aspect in the way it taught me to be critical of the things that were the nearest and dearest to me. Like that's, that's what the value of that education was. So yeah. Um, let's see. I think, I think um, we can move to my last question, which is, I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about your book specifically, um, Flying Fish in the Great White North, The Autonomous Migration of Black Barbadians. How much time we have? Because I could talk about this for days. (laughs) I mean, that'd be great. (laughs) Um, uh, Yeah. And what researching and writing a book about Blackness in Canada was like, I mean, I think we hinted at that earlier, but Yeah. So this is a a long-ish story, but I know people don't want to listen to me talk forever because I know I do podcasts. Um, so it really came out of my dissertation. So it was my um, so if anybody does a history dissertation, they're so, they're always focused in making sure your your dissertation is long enough and has enough research that can be you know easily quote unquote turned into a manuscript i gotta say easily quote unquote because you still gotta rewrite <laughs> everything um but you still have that content there and so originally when i got into grad school it was for me to take a journey of understanding second generation black identity so basically understanding myself my family's from barbados you know growing up in canada i was like okay cool who am i you know and that's why i say you know I talk about small p privilege because look, I went to school to learn about myself. Like who, who gets that? You know what I mean? Um, and so that was where the direction I was going in. This is what I wanted to do. And, you know, particularly doing my master's work, um, I was really looking at the creation of black identity in the Americas, looking at the, you know, the transatlantic slave trade. So the human trafficking of black bodies, seeing where these creations of identities really came from, what it meant to be African, looking at, you know, disembarkation ports and embarkation ports in the African continent and really always tying these pieces together. And that was like the foundation. Then, you know, suddenly during my second year of my PhD, yeah, second year of my PhD, my father died suddenly. Boom. And from there, I was like, okay, you know what? Let's kind of, not kind of, I'm going to kind of shift not just my academic work, which was kind of touch and go in that space. I was like, am I going to still do this? And what's the point? You know, you got to live, you got to eat kind of thing. And, you know, changing perspectives. I was like, all right, you know what? Let me shift this and turn my dissertation into basically a narrative of his life. And then it shifted into a narrative of his life and my mother's life as well. And from there, I was like, okay, cool. You know what? I'm still going to do the all what you need to get done for a dissertation, like all that, you know, good fun stuff. But the narrative, the story was going to be his story. So from there, it was really about his life was the thread. Almost like when you read like historical fiction, where you have a a protagonist and you have that thread and then you're just feeding into the historical narrative. But all this was not historical fiction. This was his life. So really tying down to, you know, coming down what was blackness in Barbados, you know, emigration push factors from Barbados. So he grew up in Barbados, uh, couldn't afford to go to school. So I have a lot of focus on education uh, at the time when he was growing up, like it cost money to go to school. And I don't think people really understand that. Like you had to pay to go to secondary school, so he couldn't go to school. And from there, looking at, you know, what do we call the Windrush generation? 
you know, post Second World War, migrated to the UK. So I have all these threads in the, you know, what that looked like. So he migrated to the UK, anywhere for London transport. So we're really looking at, you know, the history of, you know, London transport, looking at the Commonwealth Immigrants Act, you know, looking at settlement and racism, particularly anti-black racism in the UK. From there, time back to moving into Canada. So if you're going to talk about migration to Canada, particularly from the West Indies, you got to look at migration to the US. What a lot of Canadians don't want to really wrestle with right now is that the vast majority of newcomers, and you can even argue to this day, want to go to the States. Like that's, these are historical facts, but you have things like the McCarran Act came up and you start getting the, the you know, the borders getting closed. All right, cool. Where are we going to go? UK and or Canada. So I really tie that story in there and then bringing in my mother's story too, because we're talking about education. My father was a teacher. My mother was a principal. And so pulling all these pieces in there about, you know, his life, his migrant story, her migrant story, and also education in Canada. And I mean, it was a form of catharsis for me as well, because this is all happening in real time. Right. And I don't think a lot of people realize unless you have like death close in your family, it's not it's not the stuff that you see on TV. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not the the whole world's going to stop for you. No. Banks don't care. Government doesn't care. Bills don't care. <laughs> you just got to keep on rolling. You could stop. But that's one big thing that I learned that the world does not stop. And you just got to keep on rolling. So for me, again, I'm going to say small P privilege is that I had this opportunity to write this story. And luckily, one of the things I had asked him to do you know, just randomly, I was like, yeah, you know, you should start writing, you know, memoir. I just randomly said that. And so he was just writing down stuff, you know, randomly writing down stuff, writing down stuff. So after he died, I just found all these little bits and pieces and it, it created this narrative too. So it, it was a space where I was like, you know what? This was good for me. Um, yeah, I got a PhD out of it. Um, and that PhD journey was a an effing nightmare. I can't curse on your podcast, but that was, that was ridiculous. And, you know, going through the book process, I had a book contract with a, a really, really good. And the one that ended up with Fernwood publishing is fantastic. And they pulled it at the last minute, not Fernwood, but the other publisher pulled it at the last minute. Uh, but working with Fernwood was fantastic. And even now looking with Fernwood and the, 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 the office that they have, you know, the catalog of Fernwood is fantastic. So it, it was, a. Uh, it was a a necessary thing to do. Uh, people ask me all the time, I'm going to write another book. I'm like, F no. <laughs> like, I, I know that's what you got to do as, uh, as academics, but that, that labor that you got to put in and that, you know, that emotional and mental and physical energy, because I'm not just going to write a book for kicks. Like I didn't write this. I didn't even want to write the book. You know what I mean? It was just something that needed to happen and it happened and I have it for the rest of my life. And, you know, I try to explain to people that particularly older West Indians in particular, I'm like, look, you know, when you're gone, that's it. Like, if you don't write down your story, like, <laughs> that that's it. So I, I encourage folks to, even if you just jot it down on napkins and, and hold it somewhere that, you know, people are going to take this up and people like myself are really intrigued and we write your story. So go for it. So yeah, that that's how it is. I don't teach my book in class. I just, I just have it. It's there. I don't make no money when people buy it. So cool. <laughs> no, that was really, that was really great hearing you speak about it. Thank you for talking about it. I think, um, I think a lot about, cause my mom's an immigrant and I think a lot about why I was drawn to history as the child of an immigrant. And I think 
I think it's a Roxane Gay quote where she's talking about how like she writes to figure stuff out. And one of the things that she writes to figure out is her family and her personal history. Um, and I think history as a discipline like does really incredible things to be able to, to unpack the giant like complexity and nuance that is trying to figure out, you know, where you come from and who you are. And like you said, and like you said, that's, that's a, that's a total privilege and it's a joy a lot of the time, but also a lot of the time it's, it's not because, (laughs) because sometimes it's hard to fit that into the academy, right. Or fit that into the university. Or sometimes it's like, you're speaking, you're telling this story and you're speaking this language and everybody around you is like, what are you talking about? Like, (laughs) um, so I think, yeah, that definitely resonates with me. And, um, I think, so far my journey through through university and in grad school but um yeah that's so poignant that's wonderful that's a wonderful story for your book no problem i think that's uh, no i think that's a big thing that we again as as newcomers in these spaces is that we don't see our lives particularly when you because i know you do your work in, in migration and migrant stories that we don't see these migrant stories of having any particular i don't want to say value but not being a big thing you are essentially i'm not saying you but migrants newcomers like we are essentially historical artifacts we don't see ourselves that way but we are historical artifacts so instead of you know just in 20 years or 50 years or 100 years or writing about that random immigrant that came from barbados or something like that it was reginald eric taylor (laughs) you know what i mean and what i'm trying to get across to folks i'm like your story has so much significance in the historical narrative particularly when it comes to black stories which are lacking across north america it's like you have value you are a part of history we always think well well you weren't a politician or you weren't this you weren't that i'm like who cares (laughs) you know what i mean like politicians they go poo too (laughs) you know what i'm saying like (laughs) like what makes you any better or worse than anybody else but we just don't write down their stories and yeah i know you know particularly coming from west african cultures uh particularly indigenous cultures and what we now know as Turtle Island, that oral history, you know, griots, that's the way that we go. And it's unfortunate in, you know, this <laughs> Eurocentric epistemologies, knowledge production, that if it's not written down, it, it doesn't exist. So let's take those oral histories and write them down and make them happen. Let's do it. Yeah, totally. And then and then in telling those stories too, we're we're pulling together like huge themes, like spanning across huge geographic um, spaces and land and water. And I think, yeah, it's, it's trying to figure out how to translate those stories into a way where more people can understand them. But then of course, um, maybe the challenges, but yeah, joys that come with that. That makes a lot of sense to me. Cool. Okay. Well, Dr. Taylor, it's been so great talking to you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. No problem at all. Yeah. It's been, been a pleasure, man. This is awesome. Like, this, is, this is cool. You know, we get to just kick it and chill, you know, it's, I like this. Appreciate it. It's a great thing that you're doing. Sweet. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Thank you so much. No problem at all.